The talk tonight is on suffering and the cause of suffering. You may recognize this is an abridgment of the Four Noble Truths and uh, only focusing on the unhappy parts. So um, prepare yourselves. But even once I was about to give the Four Noble Truths uh, talk here and someone in the staff room said to me, do you really want to talk about that? You know, we've really heard quite a lot about dukkha already in this retreat. But, hey, that's what being in a Theravadan center is all about. So I hope you'll feel right at home. But the Buddha said at one point that um, the realization of the Four Noble Truths is accompanied only by happiness and joy. So I hope that will be your experience tonight. I'm sure you all have heard the story of the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree and uh, near the town of Gaya. How he thought of not teaching, but was urged to do so by a Brahma who descended and said there are beings who will understand. How he then traveled across a couple of hundred miles of northern India to find uh, five friends he had practiced with before in his ascetic period called the Group of Five Bhikkhus in the Discourses and located them uh, in the Deer Park in Sarnath uh, near Benares and then approached them and delivered his first Dharma Discourse to them. And in that discourse, he laid out the basic teaching on the Four Noble Truths. So the talk tonight is primarily based on his first discourse called the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, which translates as setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. This wheel that he established almost 2,600 years ago and which is still uh, transforming beings' lives even today. The rest of his 45 years of teachings until he was 80 were really just an amplification of this first talk, sort of like footnotes to this talk. And you may also remember that famous sutta of the handful of leaves where the Buddha said, which is greater, O monks, the handful of leaves that I've collected in my hand or the leaves in the trees in the forest around us? And the monks, being no simpletons, said, well, of course, the the handful of leaves is not nearly as big as the leaves in all the forest. But what you may not know is that he went on to say in that discourse, just so is what I have uh, shared with you is very small compared to all the things I know by direct knowledge. But what I have shared with you is enough for you to uh, gain complete liberation. And what I have shared with you, what you are to understand are the Four Noble Truths. So he again reiterated that as the essence of the handful of leaves that his teaching had disclosed. I'll just mention the Four Noble Truths uh, briefly as a way of review. The first is the truth of suffering. The second is the truth that the origin of suffering is craving. The third is the truth that the end of suffering is in the end of craving. And the fourth is that the way to the end of suffering is through the Noble Eightfold Path. So I want to talk tonight about these first two noble truths. 
What distinguishes the Buddha from simply a philosopher is that in addition to the insights of the Four Noble Truths as just outlined, he added to each one an injunction, a direction, a command, so that it was not sufficient just to hear the teachings, but with each of the Four Noble Truths, there was a a suggestion or a prescription that those listening needed to carry out. So from the very first days of his sasana, of his teaching, the Buddha was not simply philosophizing. He was directing people how to walk the path to liberation. So I'll talk about the injunctions or prescriptions as well as we go through these uh, Four Noble Truths. The way he expressed the first truth is like this. This is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamenting, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not getting what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. This truth is sometimes represented, especially in the non-Buddhist world, as, oh, the Buddha taught that life is suffering or that everything is suffering. And it casts a kind of gloomy pall around the, uh, the notion of Buddhism But this is not what the Buddha is saying and it's not implicit in this statement. It's not what he meant either, I don't believe. The word, of course, that he was using throughout the Four Noble Truths, which we translate usually by suffering, is the Pali word dukkha. But no English word is adequate to translate the range of meanings that are implicit within the Pali word dukkha. I'm going to use suffering as the primary translation as we go through the talk, but please be aware that it's uh, not a very good translation, but it's such a common translation that it is the one I'll use. Dukkha has a whole range of meanings from uh, the most intense kind of pain imaginable, which usually carries a strong experience of suffering, down to very subtle levels of unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. And the basic sense is that this world, as available through our six senses, is not capable of providing a lasting satisfaction. So you could say that maybe the best general translation for dukkha is incapable of satisfying. But that's kind of cumbersome. So we shorten it down to this term, suffering. But it ranges from intense experiences of unhappiness to very subtle experiences of lack of fulfillment. Some of the other translations that have been used that you'll read in different uh, texts and translated into English are unsatisfactoriness, unhappiness, unreliability, stress, anguish, All of these convey facets of the meaning of dukkha. 
But when you come to any specific passage, it's helpful to try to understand which aspect or which which nuance of the meaning the passage is particularly pointing to. Because some passages will point to direct experiences of pain. Others will point to the more subtle manifestations of unreliability. Overall, you can take this teaching on the first noble truth as pointing to a kind of lack, or you could say a lack of fulfillment that is universal in the way that as humans we live our life until we undergo the training that leads to freedom. There is a universal sense of insufficiency, of a feeling that if something is missing, there is not a general and constant pervasive sense of contentment throughout the human world, as you may have noticed. Even if we have everything externally, which so often these days we have in this Western paradise that technology has helped to give us, And yet it seems that the basic level of unhappiness is perhaps even increasing in our world. But it also doesn't mean that everything is miserable. There are people whose lives are basically happy, who have, I would say, a great deal of happiness and even contentment in their lives, ordinary people, untrained. But even for such people, where there's a baseline of happiness and contentment, there are good days and bad days. There are pleasurable experiences and unpleasurable experiences. There are times of frustration as well as times of contentment. But this pointing to an essential lack of fulfillment, I think, is a good way to remember the essence of this truth. One of the things I appreciate a lot in the way the Buddha phrased his teaching on the first noble truth, is how universal it is. You know, if he had come along and said, you know, basically, life really sucks, a lot of people would have just turned off and gone to hear somebody else, probably in California, (laughs) who was painting a much rosier view of the human condition. But everything that he says, it's hard to disagree with. Birth, aging, Illness, death, sorrow, and pain are all suffering. We can all relate to that. The association with what we don't like and the separation from what we like and not getting what we want, these are things that everyone can relate to as happening regularly in our lives. The other thing that I appreciate is that it's in its universality, it's also very impersonal. It doesn't say, I am suffering, or you are suffering, or you should realize how much you're suffering, guys. It doesn't say it that way. And when you think about it, if we take it that way, that has a really different feeling. You know, how often in our minds do we kind of take it that way? Oh, I really have a lot of suffering in my life. I have a problem in this part of my life. I've had this very painful pattern of, of emotion in my psychology for years and years. 
I don't know what I'm going to do about it. I don't know when I will get rid of it. These are the kind of thoughts that tend to spin out when we phrase this as, I am suffering. It's a very different feeling when we step back and we take a look at the universality of suffering as a noble truth. When we go on in the vein of, I am suffering, Does it feel very noble to you? It generally doesn't to me. When my mind runs in those directions, it feels um, lowering. I feel weighted down by the burden of those kinds of thoughts. It's not uplifting. It doesn't elevate me and it doesn't give me dignity. But when we see it as this universal psychological condition that all human beings are subject to, that to me is more what our friend Stephen Batchelor calls ennobling. That becomes an ennobling truth. Why? For a few reasons. Number one, if we don't take our own difficulties so personally, then we might be able to accept them more easily. When we realize that what we're struggling with is part of the universal human condition, well, maybe it's not so much our fault. Maybe it doesn't invalidate us as a person. Secondly, it can help connect us to everyone else that we meet. In this culture, we tend to put kind of a premium on being upbeat and happy and putting on a a smiling face in public. And sometimes we are, let's say, taken in or forget to look under the surface of the cultural appearance to recognize that everybody is dealing with these same issues of birth and aging and illness and death and being separated from what is pleasing. When we start to go a little deeper for this universal human condition of unsatisfactoriness, then we can start to connect also with everyone we meet, knowing that somehow we're, we're in the same boat with them. And then this kind of connectedness is the doorway to awakening compassion. I think this is one of the great benefits of the Brahma-vihara practices. As we go through the phrases in either metta or compassion, we realize we all share the same deep wishes and we all have the same deep struggles in achieving them. And the Brahma-viharas serve then as a way of uniting us in the human family, of allowing our compassion, our goodwill to flow out. Sometimes the sense that I am suffering and the claiming it is ours has just the opposite effect. It can feel quite isolating as though we have to be ashamed of the pain that we feel. We can't expose it and we can't share it with anyone else. There's a lovely poem by Naomi Shihab Nye um, that expresses this connection. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. 
Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So the line that uh, I most appreciate in this poem is the one where she says, you must speak to sorrow till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. The size of the cloth is vast. It's universal. It includes all sentient beings, all subject to the first noble truth of unsatisfactoriness. As we start to explore the kinds of unsatisfactoriness that we encounter, And meditation practice is the only way I know of to uh, plumb the depths of this kind of seeing. We come upon three kinds that the Buddha talked about. He said the three kinds are uh, dukkha-dukkha. Can you guess what that is? That's like a double hit. The immediate pain of existence. Viparinama-dukkha, which is the pain of alternation that we may have pleasurable circumstances for a while, but when they change, we'll feel the loss and separation, the pain of change. And the third is called Sankara Dukkha. could translate this as the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena. So just briefly, in the level of Dukkha Dukkha, it's helpful from time to time to reflect that this is an integral part of our world also. And the experiences of illness and death are clearly, for most of us, going to feel like dukkha-dukkha. When we look around the world and we think of the wars and conflicts going on, the genocide and the torture, places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Darfur, Tibet, we see big eruptions of this kind of intense suffering Even in our own society, where there is not a time of war, if you really start to listen to the stories of the people that you meet, you'll find instances not so far from our own lives in our own home of murder, of rape, of racism, and abuse of children. So going on in our own communities all around us. Living in our fairly, um, the somewhat privileged lives that I think most of us live, 
we still are subject to various kinds of dukkha dukkha. Sally and I were leading a class a few years ago of senior students who had been all practicing a while, materially were uh, reasonably comfortable. Um, we had been working together for uh, some months, if not years at this point. And one evening I asked the group to talk about the pain that was um, in their own individual lives. And I'll just mention a few of things that people shared that evening. They talked about a sense of isolation and a lack of connection with others. They talked about still dealing with their afflictive emotions of depression or sadness or anger or anxiety. They talked about feeling the pressures in their work life and the struggle to make ends meet, and a fear of of inadequacy, of performing well enough in their work. Because this was a a group partly of uh, roughly our generation, they were already feeling the effects of aging and talked about the difficulty of that, and everyone knew the, the impact of illness. Again, probably because of the age of our group, there was a lot of discussion of aging parents, who were losing their capacities and declining physically and mentally, which, as you know, is a very sad thing to see in people that you're close to. These were just some of the things that were common experiences for people even in the fairly select circle of uh, practitioners. Viparinama dukkha, the pain of alternation or change, is something we're all subject to. We enjoy uh, pleasurable conditions or experiences. When they change, we tend to feel the loss of them. If there's been even the slightest inclination of grasping, even the slightest, then there will be at least some pain or friction when the change happens. Ajahn Chah said this is like a poisonous snake, this alternation of pain and pleasure. He said, if you grab the head of a poisonous snake, it will bite you right away, and that's dukkha dukkha. But if you grab a hold of the tail, which is the non-painful end, and you hold on, eventually the head will swing around and bite you too, and that's viparinama dukkha. So the lesson is, don't grab it's not easy to do. The third of the types of dukkha the Buddha talked about is called sankara dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena. Conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory because they are unstable. They are all unstable. And that is that every state that is put together from prior causes and conditions is falling apart. It's not like Viparinama Dukkha where we see that it's going to fall apart at some time in the future. With the insight of Sankara Dukkha, we bring this um, concentrated attention to our moment-to-moment experience and we see that every mind state and every physical sensation and every external sense impression is arising and passing over and over again, moment after moment after moment. When we come into that level of seeing, we truly see the unreliability of conditioned phenomena. We had the opportunity a few years ago in California uh, to hear the Dalai Lama. Sally and I were there, and I think Sharda was there too. 
he was outdoors in the um, Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View. It's a place that, you know, Led Zeppelin might have played 20 years ago. It's a huge stage, and if Led Zeppelin was there, it would have been all full of their speakers. But on this day, the backdrop to the stage was a huge painting. It's like the whole stage was a painting of the Potala Palace, where the Dalai Lama used to live in Lhasa, uh, painted for the, the colors of sunset. So there were these sort of purple and orange colors streaking the sky and reflecting off the windows of the, the painted Potala Palace. And the Dalai Lama was on a big throne and projected over big screen televisions so that everybody, there are several thousand people in the seats and in the uh, grass amphitheater, could see him. And it was a very wonderful um, feeling. It was kind of like being at a Dharma Woodstock. Uh, That's what it felt like. It was like a festival atmosphere. And being with the Dalai Lama for three days, he was teaching on the subject of emptiness from the Heart Sutra. So it was wonderful to listen. And what he said about these three kinds of dukkha is that, number one, they each take an increasing subtlety of attention to see and to understand. So everyone can be aware of dukkha dukkha, the suffering of pain, with a little bit of thought and reflection and examination of experience one comes to understand that even pleasurable experiences come to an end, but that takes some investigation and some reflection. And then it's only with, I I believe, the very subtle attention of a concentrated mind that can see the moment-to-moment arising and passing that we really deeply understand the unreliability of all conditioned things. And this is the way the Dalai Lama explained it also. And he said that um, if you really want to help people in this world completely become free of their suffering, you need to understand these three levels completely yourself. Only then will you be able to help others uh, release their bondage in these forms of dukkha. This is a quote from the Pali Canon. It's, it's put in the mouth of a Brahma who is one of the higher gods, but it expresses a, a Dharmic teaching. Having seen form's flaw, its chronic trembling, the wise do not cling to form. Having seen form's flaw, its chronic trembling, the wise do not cling to form. Sankara Dukkha is a pointer to this trembling within form, that moment by moment, things are not stable, even for one moment, but they're constantly being created and dissolving, being created and dissolving. Thus the wise do not cling to form. Our problem, of course, is that we don't really see dukkha in this way. We're blinded by very deep conditioned tendencies. We have very strongly built-in biases to see the possibility of happiness in the world, to see the possibility of permanence, and to see a self. When in fact, as you all know, 
the things of the world aren't capable of satisfying. They are impermanent and they do not constitute a self. But our conditioned nature is such that we keep looking for lasting happiness, permanence, and self. So it's the form of ignorance that is clouding our understanding. So we approach spiritual practice with the same attitude that we've approached our worldly life, by and large. We are all um, intelligent enough to have understood that lasting happiness doesn't come from external things. But when we come into the spiritual world, we tend to think that true happiness may be found in lasting spiritual things. This is certainly true for me. And I see it uh, still in my tendency when I'm not looking closely. So that is, I keep thinking that if I just get my attention right and my posture right and my concentration right and my intention right, I'm going to be able to sort everything out. And I'm going to find this nice plateau of peace and concentration and openness and metta, and then I'm just going to be able to hang there. (laughs) You know, for six weeks at least. (laughs) You know, hopefully the rest of my life, but six weeks would be a good start. And then every time it doesn't happen that way, I feel like I've blown it. Now I've got to go back and set those conditions better. So I find in myself this tendency to look to land somewhere in some meditative state that's going to be ongoing. And meditative states are also part of compounded phenomena. Until you realize the unconditioned, meditative states before that are all put together by prior conditions. So just as they were put together, they will also fall apart. So we not only you know, keep wanting things out in the world, but we bring the same attitude here and we keep wanting things to be a certain way in meditation. Now, it is definitely true that there are uh, skillful uh, attitudes to cultivate, skillful states of mind to cultivate in Dharma practice. And it does so happen that those skillful attitudes and skillful states of mind tend to feel better than the unskillful ones. So, do you see the dilemma here? We do want to cultivate the factors of the Eightfold Path, the seven factors of enlightenment. And the factors of the Eightfold Path and the seven factors of enlightenment do feel better than their opposites. So the question is, are you cultivating them out of a desire for pleasant experience, are you cultivating them out of wisdom? Knowing that they are onward leading. So this is an interesting one to explore. I'm going to come back and touch on it again a little later. But it's an interesting one to keep an eye out about. So life throughout, worldly life, spiritual life, doesn't have cozy plateaus but it is um, changeable, it is raw, 
it's very vivid and it's often intense. And so that tends to be our experience here as well as outside. But this changeable quality, uh, while it's initially disappointing, works to our benefit in the long run. This is a, I came upon this quotation in the Samyutta, and uh, it caused me to ponder for a few moments. But I, I love the way the Buddha says this. He says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, if there was one speck of permanent form as big as my fingernail, then the holy life lived for the purpose of liberation would not be possible. In other words, if there was this amount of permanence in the universe, it would gum up the works. And our, we would not be able to transform our mind from its current state, clouded by ignorance, into a state of full enlightenment. So it is only due to the impermanent and essentially empty nature of our own being that we are able to make that transformation. Suffering is not stuck either. So what was the injunction? What's the prescription that goes with the first noble truth? The Buddha said, this noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood. So this is the injunction with the first noble truth. It is to be fully understood. Part of the implication of that is we don't understand it now. Even after listening to this very eloquent discourse, (laughs) you probably do not understand fully the first noble truth. And I have to admit, I don't either. So what does that mean, that we don't fully understand it now? Well, I think as a practice direction, this is a wonderful instruction. In order to fully understand this truth, I think we need to keep applying it over and over in our experience until we understand its depth. And that means we can use it as a frame to bring in again and again and again to look at the way our experience is unfolding. Ajahn Sumedho uh, said that of his own practice, he used the Four Noble Truths as his primary practice orientation for all the years of his um, unfolding. And that meant that he would bring them in and apply them, check them out in each situation that he found himself in. So he calls this a lifetime's practice, the understanding and the application of the first noble truth. So let's talk about some of the ways that we don't see it. When we are experiencing some difficulty, how often do we see it as, oh, this is the first noble truth revealing itself? Is it the first thought that comes to mind? How often do we think, oh, I've screwed up again? It's my suffering again that's coming to the fore. So often we see it as there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with somebody else, or there's something wrong with the world. You know, the world includes this center, the facility, the food, the weather, etc. So, Notice that because we don't like to see the truth of dukkha, 
we have a lot of ways of kind of missing the point. We might deny to ourselves that it's happening. Oh, no, this isn't pain. This isn't as bad as it was yesterday anyway. Or we could judge ourselves. Oh, you just did something wrong. You know, it's your fault that there's pain now. Because the noble truths encourage us to take responsibility for suffering and, and the end of suffering, one can get this impression from the Buddhist teachings that we are at fault if we're suffering. So it's very interesting. There's also a sutta reference uh, where a questioner comes and asks the Buddha, um, am I the cause of my own suffering? And I was very surprised to read that the Buddha said no. And I found this very liberating. And then uh, the questioner went on, um, was another the cause of my suffering? You know, think about mom and dad, if nothing else. And the Buddha said, no. And he said, well, how is it then? And the Buddha went through the chain of dependent origination. When ignorance is present as a condition, karmic formations arise. With karmic formations as a condition, consciousness arises, and so on. Sequence of 12 steps that ends in suffering. We'll probably talk about it more later. The interesting thing to me that has made me reflect a lot is the first step in that chain that leads to suffering is ignorance. So I want to ask each of you, did you put your ignorance there? Did you, do you remember ever kind of knowingly creating it? There was an enlightened mind to start with, but you slid it into the picture to cover it? No. In fact, the Buddha said that a beginning for ignorance cannot be discerned. That we have been traveling this round really since beginningless time. So if we're not responsibility if we're not responsible for ignorance, and ignorance is the primary source of our suffering, how can we ultimately say it's our fault? This may sound abstract to you, but the more that I came to see ignorance as the fundamental um, problem in my relationship to life, the less then I had to say, oh, I made that happen. And I saw that all the mistakes and all the blunders that I'd taken in life and all the suffering that I'd caused was based on that ignorance, stemmed from that ignorance. So the judgment of ourself is off the mark of the noble truths. There are many, many causes and conditions that have led to the situation we find ourselves in. Many causes and conditions. So similarly, if we try to escape from the experience of the pain by blaming others, we're also missing the point of the first noble truth. You can blame other people all day long for your suffering. Does it ever alleviate it? It hasn't for me. It can keep us stuck in a resentful or blaming attitude, but it doesn't seem to lift it.
So can we, when we're in difficulty, if we see a tendency to blame ourselves or to blame others or to blame the world, just stop for a moment and say, oh, this is a form of dukkha. This is the first noble truth. And then we might inquire a little more into it. Oh, what is the real source of this dukkha? But being able to name it as dukkha in its universal quality, being able to see it as one more instance of the first noble truth, is the beginning of this kind of insight where the noble truth of dukkha comes to be fully understood moment by moment. Now there's um, another point I want to make in relation to dukkha that is kind of, um, kind of delicate about opening to the first noble truth. As I've said, it's not an easy truth to be with. We have a built-in bias not to see it. It's part of the Buddha's teaching that goes against the stream. So how can we learn to relate? So, if we don't stay in touch with this noble truth, then our normal, um, what are called vipalasa, illusory way of perceiving the world, will lead us to believe that there is a permanence, lasting happiness, and a self. And we will project into the future this safe and cozy plateau, whether it be through external things or through internal meditative states. And we will aim our lives into the future to land there. So um, putting our happiness into the future based on an illusory uh, wish. Clearly, this is misleading and involves us in more delusion. But the other thing is that if we start to dwell on the concept of dukkha a lot, we can start to see the whole world in terms of dukkha. And then we really start to feel that, um, that gloom that's sometimes attributed to Buddhism, and we go, oh my God, everything is dukkha. Life is dukkha. My life is dukkha. My friend's life is dukkha. Everybody's life is dukkha. But the problem with this is we have taken an insight and converted it into a belief. We are not seeing the, the true nature of things moment by moment. We've taken one experience, held on to that as a generalized view of the world, and then stapled it everywhere. It's like that, it's like that, it's like that, it's like that. So basically what we're doing is clinging to a view, but when an insight is turned into a view, it's no longer true. An insight needs to be of how are things here and now. If we form a view about the world as being dukkha, then that covers over the living reality. Because there are many, many moments in the day when there is not, I'll say it, when there is not dukkha. Generally, these moments slip by us, and we don't notice those either. But I'll talk about this when we get to the third noble truth at another time. So, the intention of the first noble truth is not so that you'll get gloomy and develop an aversion about life. That's not the point, 
And it's a misapplication. It's a converting a truth into a view. So the Buddha said this, a practitioner is not overwhelmed by suffering and does not overwhelm himself with suffering. She does not give up the pleasure that accords with Dhamma, yet she is not infatuated with that pleasure. And many of the suttas that talk about the uh, development of the factors of enlightenment and uh, the development of the higher qualities of the path all talk about aspects of happiness and joy and rapture as being integral to the evolution of the path. So in order to understand suffering, it doesn't work to be overwhelmed by it. We have to be able to, Ajahn Sumedho likes this phrase, stand under it. That means we have to be able to support it on our own shoulders as we're standing up straight. We have to be able to hold it. Or he says, embrace it, accept it. In order to understand suffering, we have to be able to let it be in our lives just as it is and still be upright, still be dignified, still be ennobled. So how can we do that? So let me ask you, has suffering ever been useful in your practice? Have you ever learned anything? Has it ever opened qualities of heart or mind? What what ones? What have you found through connecting with suffering? Anybody? Compassion. Suffering is said to be the proximate cause of compassion. What else have you learned? Jim? Empathy. Mm-hmm. Being able to feel another's suffering from feeling and opening to our own. Impermanence. Impermanence. Investigation of suffering leads to seeing impermanence, so wisdom is cultivated. Appreciation. How so, Joan? (laughs) Yeah. Experiencing the suffering can really make us experience the times that are free from that suffering. Appreciation. Patience. Strength. Confidence. I can bear this. I can understand it. I can work with it. So in many ways, suffering is um, a training ground for the paramis. We grow, we develop, and we open through a wise relationship to suffering. But it it depends on us not being overwhelmed by it. So we have to find that inner strength that lets us maintain our balance while relating to it, while understanding it, while feeling it, coming in contact. That really is the power of equanimity. So equanimity, when it's present, gives us that strength to learn from suffering. One actor that I always really enjoy uh, seeing in movies is Morgan Freeman. And I recently read a little bit about his life story. He was born in 1937, so he turned 70 
this year. And he grew up in Mississippi. And being an African-American young man in Mississippi through the 30s and 40s and 50s would not have been a primarily happy experience. I, I have the feeling. And yet when you look at his uh, character today, I feel you know an, an incredible amount of um, dignity and uh, self-respect in his bearing. I don't know if you are aware of this, but he was the actor chosen in two different movies to play the character of God. So that's kind of a testament to his character. I don't know many people who could play God very well, but he was, he was pretty good. Sally and I were um, in New York last fall. We went to a Broadway show. Um, it happened to be Spamalot, which was not particularly dignified, but it was a lot of fun. And when we came out of the theater after the show, it was probably about 11 o'clock, there was Morgan Freeman walking down the sidewalk toward us with a, a woman uh, that he was with. He was dressed in a black wool overcoat, and he looked just like a character out of his movies. He was tall and dignified, and you could just sort of see the crowd of people just parting, you know, <laughs> in advance of his wake. So he has, he has a really, to me, a wonderful bearing and, and character. And I have to believe that a lot of that was learned in dealing with the uh, adverse circumstances of growing up as a black man in a racist culture. So, there are many things that we can learn from suffering when we can bear it, when we are not overwhelmed by it, but we need to see it clearly, moment after moment. One of the ways that we know that we haven't fully understood dukkha is that we keep chasing things. If we really understood dukkha and the true meaning of impermanence, the thoroughgoingness of impermanence, we wouldn't chase material things, we wouldn't chase people, and we wouldn't chase meditation experiences. So to the extent that we still do those things, those are signs that we still have a way to go in the full understanding of dukkha. Also along the lines of the ennobling uh, quality of dukkha, Ajahn Chah said this, which you've probably heard before, but I love this reflection. He said, there is suffering that leads to more suffering, and there is suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Now I wonder what makes the difference between those two. We see a lot of suffering in the world that seems to lead to more suffering. There seems to be this spiral of violence and uh, unhappiness and the pursuit of materialism going on in the world today. So what is the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering? Or better, we should say, what is the quality of mind that can transform suffering toward the end of suffering? So I think one aspect is this base of equanimity, that we have to be strong enough to be able to bear it. The other is an interest. If we have an interest to learn from that suffering, 
that brings in a very, very wholesome factor of mind. This sort of interest and investigative quality is the second of the enlightenment factors. The first is mindfulness, which gets us there and puts us in touch with what's happening. The second is that we want to investigate how that suffering is arising, how it's being sustained, and how it can be ended. So if we get interested in suffering, this is really the, the I would say, the turning point that starts to lead us toward uh, using that as the end of suffering. We have lots of opportunities in this retreat to see that, as I'm sure you've noticed. So that simple practice of turning the attention to the attitude of mind, seeing if there's wanting, seeing if there's not wanting, seeing if there's delusion, those are pointers to conflict, to struggle, or having an agenda, and uh, pointing to some way we may be in conflict with our situation, and therefore uh, in some degree of suffering, either gross or subtle. So if we can take that opportunity to learn what leads to suffering, how does it get created, how can it be released, and how can it be ended, that's the investigation that we're here for. I heard a teacher giving a a Dharma talk recently, and he said something like, changing the conditions that lead to suffering is what our practice is about. There is no other practice than this. Changing the conditions that lead to suffering is what our practice is all about. There is no other practice than this. It's only through our own wisdom that we can change those conditions. We can't do it by a force of will. Or maybe a better way to say it is it is only wisdom that can change those conditions, not a force of will. So we have to look, investigate, attend, be interested, be curious, until the wisdom itself reveals to us suffering, its cause, and its end. And if we are patient and we stay with that experience, knowing it as the first noble truth, the wisdom will reveal that to us. The wisdom will unfold the way out. So I didn't get to the cause of suffering tonight. So we're halfway there. We'll do that another night. But I'll just, uh, I just want to end with uh, the Buddha's formulation from this same discourse, from the same sutta of the third noble truth, just to point to the direction of the teaching. This is what the Buddha had to say about the third noble truth. This is the noble truth of the end of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of craving, the giving up and relinquishment of it, freedom from it, non-reliance of it. That is the end of suffering. So let's just sit for a minute together.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.